Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Last week, I considered our Articles of Incorporation from 1881, and they read this way. To form an association where people without regard to theological differences may unite for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture and humane work. Now, last week, I considered the phrase without regard to theological differences and what the phrase religious culture meant back in 1881. Now, today, I want to consider uniting for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture. And then in two weeks, I'll finish up by talking about humane work. We have to admit up front that mutual helpfulness as a phrase is not the way we would put that nowadays. Mutual helpfulness sounds kind of Victorian, doesn't it? It's kind of out of that age of words like duty and honor and virtue and that kind of thing. Mutual helpfulness, very Victorian. The people who were freely associating at First Unitarian Society to create the society pledged to unite for mutual helpfulness and in intellectual, moral, and religious culture were a particular kind of people. As I mentioned last week, the word culture has developed in its, in its different connotations since 1881, and really at that time is at the crux of when it, the word was changing. Culture was becoming much more at that time than just high culture, going to art museums and going uh, to listen to symphonies and that kind of thing, even though that's what it had meant for a long time. Now, as an old English professor, I have to say that the word culture in this particular text uh, seems to be a parallel construction. I think uh, the meaning appears to be mutual helpfulness in intellectual culture, moral culture, and religious culture, and humane work. In the first two, intellectual and moral culture is being used in that older sense of the term. In the third instance, we see the newer understanding of that term culture as the elements that make up human societies emerges in the research, the anthropology of that time. I should also mention parenthetically that society these days sounds like a very weird thing to be. And that word, too, was undergoing a lot of change. First Unitarian society. Nowadays, it's odd. The people of the time were obviously avoiding the word church. We've never been a church here. But the use of society is interesting as well. It was being used at the time for such things as the National Geographic Society and the American Chemical Society, groups involved in the study of particular subjects. So a Unitarian society was supposed to be studying Unitarianism and what made it up. That's what the term meant at the time. But 
To go back to that very Victorian phrase, mutual helpfulness, used in starting, uh, stating the purpose of a voluntary association, this new thing called First Unitarian Society. Mutual helpfulness will be the society's why. Why are you bothering to get together on Sunday morning? Now, I said two weeks ago, the why here has always been about transformation. It's transformation of self, transformation of, of the society, the cultures in which we live, the larger society. The people of this society have sought to create that change, that transformation, in order to be better people and to create a more humane world. Something else to reflect on is this. In late 19th century America, Americans were all about building all kinds of voluntary associations. They were, we can see from the evidence around us, considerably more thoughtful and adept at building communities for people than we are nowadays. Reflect on some of the organizations that swept in behind those Europeans moving west. Some are with us still, some are not, but Remember that most of these groups were segregated by gender. So when we begin to look at the names of the groups from those times, there are usually two of them, and only one of them appears usually in the material. The Freemasons also included a women's auxiliary called the Order of the Eastern Star, for example. Now, all of these things, think about this. There are 40,000 people in Minneapolis at the time. The Odd Fellows, the Knights of Pythias, the Knights of Columbus, the Woodmen of the World, the Grand Army of the Republic Veterans Association. They're not here anymore. <laughs> the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks. The Grange, which are the patrons of husbandry. The Daughters of the American Revolution. The Sons of Temperance. And yes, the Daughters of Temperance. The Ancient Order of Hiberians, the Loyal Order of Moose, the Shriners, and specifically here, of course, the Sons of Norway, assuming there were also around some daughters of Norway. All these, not to mention countless congregations and political groups that developed in that time period, we can safely say that Americans of the late 19th century were inveterate builders of communities, both in voluntary associations and on up into the political structures that developed into cities and states. Again, they were then considerably more thoughtful and adept at building community than we are nowadays, and we need to give them credit for that. This evidence also puts the lie to the myth of the lone wolf individual who goes off with an axe and a rifle to conquer the West. We today are the ones who have lost the thread when it comes to building community. We today are the lone wolves, and it is killing us. We do well to think about this mutual helpfulness thing that sounds so Victorian. I don't want to underline, I do want to underline the fact that can be overlooked. When First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis was going all these years, we have never been very popular with our, within the larger culture. Too often, American freethinkers and humanists have been the anathema of the dominant culture. 
Too often we have been viewed in the negative. We're not religious. We don't have faith. We're not Christian. Uh, we're heretics and all that sort of thing. Godless communists stuck to us for a number of years. One very human answer to that pressure, unfortunately, is to accept the definitions that others give you. To begin to see ourselves as other, as negative, it's easy to fall into the trap of being the other. For me, one goal today is to disabuse us of that thought that we're so far other. The founders of First Unitarian Society were not planning to hide behind walls. They were planning to promote their positive view of human nature, human religion, philosophy, and progressive systemic social change. I contend, despite the contention of many that are religious, of our religious critics, that uh, we do not have this what is it, this need to believe that we, we, you guys don't have a need to believe. You guys don't, what you're doing with your God-shaped hole, our Christian friends will ask us. That's Blaise Pascal, by the way. Well, I don't think we have a God-shaped hole, but I think we do have a blank at the end of the phrase, I will something. I need something. Here's what I will do. That blank is not a God-shaped hole for us. Many in our culture still think that if human beings only fill that blank with specific versions of our various human gods, humanity in general would be better off. But despite the generally warm feelings concerning particular sorts of gods, in the event too many fill that blank with the strange gods of what? Nationalism? Ego? Patriotism? I don't have to make a list. We know the negatives. Furthermore, we humans often confuse a number of things into one thing. For example, our God too easily joins a particular nationalist faction, whether that be thoughtless conservatism or thoughtless liberalism for that matter, rather than some expansive concept of a compassionate being. Does your God want your country to be safe? And you do, you know, my country right or wrong? Is that the answer? I don't think so. We have to admit that the phrase something shaped whole ain't as good as Blaise Pascal's God shaped whole. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. But I do think that that is what we humans have as we really think about it. We confuse a number of things about what we think about God, and we start, it's a portmanteau word too often, right? Um, we start packing it up with positive things for us. Patriotism, nationalism, capitalism, whatever. For much of the existence of First Unitarian Society, we have indeed heard the term thrown at us, godless communist. And yeah, that's negative, and too often we have allowed it to hit us especially in the 40s and 50s when it was actually dangerous to do. And then we've hid behind our beautiful walls, I think. The term atheist is too often attached to the term humanism. I prefer the older meaning of that term atheist, if we have to carry it around, heretic, unorthodox, 
someone who doesn't think like everybody else. That's what I think a humanist, and maybe atheist, really is. We're inclined to think about the complexity of the issue instead of that simplicity of just stacking a one word with all of these different positive terms. The tradition at First Unitarian Society is to think complexly about every subject. Why should we leave the concept of God to be a caricature and a cliche? We have long asked. Here's a question to ponder. Why was Unitarian theological thinking cutting edge in 1881, but now not so much? What happened? The central challenge to a cohesive Unitarian Universalist theology was and is the idea of perennial philosophy, or more popularly known as many paths, one mountain. Now this is an idea, a meme if you will, that began among the German romantics way back in the early 19th century. This is not a new idea. And it accelerated with the American transcendentalists uh, who created whole traditions around us. It, it uh, created the Baha'i uh, faith over time in the late 19th century. Vedanta uh, in uh, Hinduism, again in the late 19th century. And then it becomes part of the basic assumptions among liberals um, up until this day, unfortunately. As a popular poster says, there are many paths to the top of the mountain, but the view is always the same. This is perhaps a beautiful thought, but it isn't true. One of the major figures in the post-Second World War manifestation of many paths, one mountain, or perennial philosophy as it's more properly called, was a British author, Aldous Huxley, who also famously took hallucinogenic drugs to trigger his mystical experiences. And so he really becomes popular among liberals in the 1950s and the 1960s. His book, The Perennial Philosophy, has been reprinted time after time after time, and it lives on the bookshelves of almost every liberal minister, including me. Why did this become the orthodoxy of Unitarian Universalism after the Second World War is the question. Why? As with so many universalizing concepts, perennial philosophy can point to many universal aspects of the annals of human religion. Huxley's book is an anthology of selected writings from various religions around the world and through time, and hey presto, they all agree. It's a perennial philosophy. He got to cherry pick. However, do those aspects reflect pieces of a universal truth about ultimate reality, God, or do they merely reflect the structures and processes of the human brain? Psychology. Is the human religious impulse at its most fundamental level a record of finding capital T truth? Or is it what we find when we think about our own brains, our own minds. This remains a question. And Huxley and his followers tended to avoid that question when stated as blatantly as I have just put it. They were being a little bit canny. In the event, perennial philosophy took those interested in liberal religions by storm. After all, if all truth 
is up one mountain and only the paths are different? We all think alike. Let's just peace out and love each other, right? Well, hooray for multi-faith work, but unfortunately, again, it just isn't true. Perennial philosophy was a wonderful illusion for post-Second World War people, that we all are in this together somehow. It was born of the destruction of the Second World War and then the Cold War, and might there be a way to rid this world of religious violence? It was a brilliant and poignant question to ask in 1945 when the book Perennial Philosophy was published. It was hopeful, idealistic, and mistaken. Continuing to follow this line of reasoning is still idealistic, but it's still mistaken. Yet another attempt to remake the world in the image of Europe or the United States. The perennial philosophies, oh, guess what? They happen to be Mediterranean basin monotheisms and then Hinduism, right? Now, consider what Huxley himself said about perennial philosophy in his book, again published in 1945. He says, the perennial philosophy is expressed most succinctly in the Sanskrit formula, tat tadvam asi, thou art, that art thou, the Atman or eminent eternal self is one with Brahman, that's the big God in Hinduism, right? The absolute principle of all existence. And the last end of every human being is to discover the fact for himself, sexist language, to find out who he really is. Now, let's think about what he's actually saying here for a moment. This phrase is indeed from the Upanishads from the 600s uh, before the Common Era. It's real. It's profound. The Sanskrit phrase is tattavam tasi, thou art that, or you are that. It does indeed mean that each of us is part of the ultimate reality. You are the cosmos, and the cosmos is you. That's what it means. Because that concept is central to advyata vindata, Hinduism. So note, there are two adjectives here, right? It's that far back into the Hindu philosophy and that deep into it, all right? It's a non-dualistic school of Hinduism that emphasizes the oneness of the individual. We're all Atman, right? With Brahman, all of it. We're all in this together. Huxley's very clear about what he means in this quote. The last end of every human being is to discover the fact for themselves, to find out who they really are. This had become the center of thinking for Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, several years before this, when he first read about it in 19th century, uh, very bad and unscholarly translations out of Sanskrit. The self, and it's always a capital S, the self of Vedanta Hinduism won't be doing anything that you can put on your resume. That's the difference between capital S self Hinduism and capital S self Western world. We're about building character. We always have been in the Western world. Building character. Hinduism is about tearing it down. That's a little different. But wait, there's more. 
All right? It so happens that I have a favorite saying in the Upanishads, too. It is, netty netty. Neither this nor that. Not this, not that. We're talking about ultimate reality here, God, if you will, or whatever. It's as abstract as concepts get, and they're not easy to comprehend, and maybe none of us ever do, actually. Why did the saying become so important in Euro-American religious thought? Because, again, perennial philosophy really goes in on this. Well, in point of fact, the point is not about the self, it's about no self. Tavam asi, thou art that, centers on thou, the self, but it's a capital S self. My preferred way of saying the same thing is neti neti, neither this nor that. Why do I prefer neti neti? Because it centers on no center. Who's important in the universe? Well, you can see why perennial philosophers would say the self. That's a Western concept. But it's not a Hindu concept. It just isn't. This is no center. The self isn't the question in this second phrasing. Both of them are from the Upanishads. The problem is the concepts themselves. We murder to dissect, as William Wordsworth, the poet, said. Neti Neti tells us that we can't ever get it. We can't ever get it because the very operation of human conceptualizing the way we think destroys our ability to conceptualize the unconditioned, which is what God is if there is one. If you will indulge me one more moment, here's my favorite idea from Hinduism. It's from the song of Ashtavakra from the 500s before the Common Era. One believes in existence. Another says, there is nothing. Rare is the one who believes in neither. That one is free from confusion. That's not Western thinking. That's not Christianity reheated in another form. And that's why it wasn't paid attention to in perennial philosophy. Neti, neti. It ain't this, it ain't that. <laughs> it's not here, and it's everywhere. The perennial philosophy became a cherished part of Unitarian Universalist thought after the Second World War. It's, it's so happy, right? It's so kumbaya, and it's so wrong. Nowadays, we call it cultural appropriation. <laughs> it's stolen ideas. Not only stolen, but then made to look like they're Christian ideas, which they're not. No, all human religions are not liberal Christianity. It is extremely damaging and indeed mentally limiting even to think that might somehow be the case. We human beings are amazing multifaceted and contradictory animals. And so are our religions. We don't agree, they don't agree. Mutual helpfulness in intellectual culture, moral culture, ethics, and religious culture. I hope that perhaps I've just helped you think through one of those complex 
conundrums that has made Unitarian Universalism not cutting edge anymore. Welcome to the first Unitarian society, society, where we take religion seriously enough to actually think about it. The FUS mission statement today says this, as a congregational humanist community, we at First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis foster a free search for knowledge and meaning, strive for justice, and serve one another, the Twin Cities and beyond. Reflect on how similar the aspirations have remained over the more than 14 decades of this congregation's existence, despite the changes in meanings and words. Now, I was involved in helping write the last mission statement, and some of you were. We didn't look at that old 1881 thing even once. But I want you to look at this slide. And notice how the words have changed, but the ideas have not. To form an association, they said then, a congregational humanist community, we say now. Without regard to theological differences, they said then, foster a free search for knowledge and meaning, we say now. Mutual helpfulness, serve one another, we say now. Humane work, strive for justice. Not that different, is it? First Unitarian Society was built by and for people like you. People who take ideas seriously enough to actually think about them. People willing to think outside all those boxes. Now, the perennial philosophy was a really bad idea, but I want to be fair to the depth of Aldous Huxley's thought. He realized toward the end of his life that he was wrong. At the end of his life, Aldous Huxley wrote this. It is a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end that one has no more to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. Frankly, that's about as profound as it gets. A thought to live by, try to be a little kinder. How's that for mutual helpfulness? Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.